From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about transition of power and election legitimacy, no shortage of things to talk about there. Uh, Our guest this week is Lawrence Douglas, who is the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and the author of a book called Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. And I think the three of us agree that um, Professor Douglas really packs a lot into this quite short book and uh, does does a good job of, of breaking down what can be some complex topics in, in constitutional law and, and subsequent case law regarding uh, transition of power and those topics. Yeah, he does really a nice job, I think, of looking historically at how some of the dangers confronting us in this election have always been there, but putting it into the contemporary context in terms of, you know, extreme polarization, in terms of the uh, politics of various key states, and of course, in terms of having uh, Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Two, what, two of the last five elections, the, the winner of the popular vote was not ultimately the winner because of the electoral college. And so part of what is at issue here, part of what is different in this current climate is just how split down the middle the the electorate is, right? In terms of electoral votes, in terms of popular votes, in terms of uh, uh, the Senate, um, everything is so close that little discrepancies, little problems, little controversies can be decisive. They can determine who wins or who loses, right? It was 537 votes in in Florida, right? And Mm -hmm. and that's the other thing that that we're seeing, right? I mean, with the 2018 election, you saw a Republican governor replaced by a Democratic governor in Wisconsin, and the Republican-controlled legislature immediately went into session and immediately passed all these laws to limit the power of the incoming Democratic. Well, that, that was not just in Wisconsin, Chris. That happened in uh, North Carolina as well. That's and right. I believe in at least one uh, one other state. But you know, let's take a step back because I mean, we're 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 kind of bouncing around the role of the states here, and I think that might be the key place to start. That the elections are decentralized to fifty different states, and that it is up to partisans in each state to determine the voting rules. I mean, it's, it's the exact same thing as with gerrymandering, isn't it? Where many right. states use, you know, political means to draw the districts. Now, other states do not, right? And they use nonpartisan commissions. We've talked about that on this show, but that is not the case in elections. There is almost no nonpartisan, completely mm-hmm. apolitical body that oversees American elections. So when you're in a time when politics are highly uh, polarized and when partisan tensions are as sharp as they are now, by the kinds of examples that you were just given, and when traditional norms that maybe held back the possibilities of behaviors are breaking down, then you're into some uh, dangerous territory with this election. The legislatures are the ones that have the final say about who the electors are that go to the electoral college. 
But then the governor is the one that has to actually send the electors over to the Electoral College. You could have all kinds of potential for trouble here, as we have seen in the past. And this is where I think Lawrence's book is really, really well done, is in talking about how, hey, look, this happened. Right. We, we, there is a roadmap for all of this to happen. So there are virtues associated with federalism, right? Laboratories of democracy, different um, parts of the country dealing with their specific problems. But the idea that this is a, a uniformly good and that there's no downside to federalism is just wrong. And and this could be a case in which we have serious problems because we have state and local control over over elections. And yeah. that that doesn't even have anything to, you know, leave Trump out of it. That's still a potential problem. So anyway, you know, Lawrence said in the interview and I, I think his book makes clear, too, that these are not just the kind of crazy machinations of a political scientist or, or a law professor, in his case, who's sitting around in the ivory tower kind of gaming all these things out. These are very real possibilities, and I think it's worthwhile to hear his perspective on them. So let's go now to the interview with Lawrence Douglas. Lawrence, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. My pleasure to be with you, Jenna. So I was really excited to uh, dig into your book, Will He Go? Uh, as I understand it, it started as a series of columns that you've been writing for The Guardian over the past couple of years. At what point did you realize that this is there's something bigger going on here that, that warranted a, a more comprehensive project that this, this book would eventually become? The very first column that I wrote for uh, The Guardian was, uh, this was shortly after uh, Trump's election. And this is when Trump tried to argue that in addition to winning the Electoral College, he in fact had also won the popular vote, except for the fact that the popular vote victory was stolen from him as a result of these three to five million phantom voters. And I remember at the time, so I wrote a piece about that, and it wasn't simply about the kind of extravagant narcissism that uh, Trump was demonstrating uh, in insisting that he always needed the biggest crowds. Remember, he also insisted that the crowd at his inauguration had been larger than Barack Obama's. So it wasn't so much focusing on the uh, narcissism of the claim. It was trying to focus on the politics of the claim. And even back then, I started thinking, wow, what if you had an incumbent president? This is the guy who's now been elected, who was uh, challenging the terms of an electoral loss. And so that very first column already kind of like planted the seed of the book idea in my head of kind of trying to think through, you know, how well prepared our legal and constitutional system is for dealing with an incumbent who contests the terms of an electoral defeat. You, you say in the book that the our constitutional system presupposes uh, a peaceful transition of power. And thinking about, you know, I, obviously the, the framers could not have predicted Donald Trump exactly, but I'm wondering if, if this piece about transition of, of, of power and just, just assuming that whomever loses the election will concede if this was something of a, of a blind spot for them. I'm not sure if it's, it was exactly a blind spot in the following sense, Jenna, because I do think that the framers of the Constitution were poignantly aware of the vulnerabilities of a democracy to demagoguery. 
And they really tried to create a system that would guarantee that you wouldn't get a demagogue elected president. In fact, you know, the whole arguably uh, dysfunctional system that we have of electing a president, relying on the electoral college, that was really designed to make it extremely difficult or unlikely or really impossible for a demagogue to be elected. Then you have to ask the question, well, what kind of safeguards does the system put in place in case a demagogue has been elected? And that's where the system doesn't function pretty well. It kind of was working from the assumption that this isn't going to happen. And once the unthinkable or the improbable or that which was not supposed to happen happens, then the system isn't particularly well created or designed to uh, troubleshoot that problem. In fact, I, I, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this at greater length, but I would say that the uh, system is more likely to exacerbate an electoral crisis than it is to uh, diffuse one once one seizes hold. You know, more and more people, the the closer we get to November, are kind of following the the lead that that you set out and thinking that you know we could very well have have a situation on our hands um, where there's not a clear winner, something you know akin to what what you also talk about with Bush v. Gore in 2000, but obviously throwing in. Donald Trump and everything that that comes with him. So one thing we have to kind of look at is, unfortunately, the Electoral College and the way the Electoral College works. And, you know, one of the things, and this is just kind of an anti-democratic result, this is not necessarily a result which predicts a, a real kind of electoral crisis, but we've already seen in the 21st century that the Electoral College can make a winner of someone who has lost the popular vote. Um, that didn't ever happen during the 20th century. And it's already happened twice in 2000 and 2016 in the uh, 21st century. But what's particularly problematic, and this is kind of this real vulnerability, because first of all, we do have this, as you've mentioned, this kind of this very unusual president. And, and I do think that, you know, in using an adjective like unusual, we really need to be very specific in what we're talking about here. Uh, we really have a president for the first time in American history who has worked aggressively to challenge the integrity of our electoral system. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing. It's an incredibly dangerous thing for to, to have an incumbent president who basically says that the most elemental process in a democracy, that is the electoral process, that it's not trustworthy. We can't necessarily trust its results. How does that connect with concerns about the Electoral College? Well, the Electoral College can put incredible amounts of pressure on the results in a handful of swing states. We already saw that, obviously, in 2000. We saw in 2000 the fact that Al Gore won the election by 500,000 votes nationally mattered nothing. He lost in Florida by 537 votes, and that cost him the presidency. In 2016, we saw that uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million votes, uh, but she lost the Electoral College by a combined total of 70,000 votes in uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And the reason I emphasize that is if you have someone like a Trump who says that the electoral process is vulnerable, it's much easier to make that case if you're challenging the result of, let's say, 537 
uh, a 537 vote margin of defeat in Florida, or let's say a 10,000 vote margin of defeat in Michigan. It's much easier to make the argument that fraud has stolen you the election than it is if you're trying to challenge losing by 3 million votes. I mean, we saw that he even tried that in 2016. He tried that argument. It didn't get a lot of traction. But um, we also have seen that he has been very aggressively uh, trying to attack the uh, validity and the legitimacy of mail-in ballots and the the outcome in these swing states. So there's a couple of steps that happen with the presidential electors who are part of the electoral college, uh, their their work and the, the, the subsequent work of, of state governors and of Congress happens mostly behind the scenes. Can you just quickly walk us through what those steps are as, as a way to set the stage for what might go wrong in that, that intervening uh, couple of, of months? Absolutely. So one of the things that I think your listeners need to bear in mind, and again, it might be something they're well aware of, but you know, when you go to the polls on November 3rd, you're not really electing, uh, you're not really voting for, um, for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden or for another, let's say, uh, third party candidate. You're actually voting for a slate of electors who have been pledged to that uh, candidate. Those slate of electors basically are pledged to vote for that candidate. To, or the, the, the state that uh, whoever wins the popular vote in that state then receives all the electoral college votes of that state. So it doesn't matter if you win that state by one vote or if you win that state by 100,000 or 500,000 votes, you get all the electoral college votes of that state. On, uh, they will get together on December 14th in the state capitals. And they will vote for whoever has won the popular vote in that state. And that, of course, presupposes that comes December 14th, when all the electors meet in their respective state capitals or in D.C. as well, that they know who has won the state. Now, you could ask the question, how would you not know who has won the state? And this is where things can become very complicated and dangerous. And I think the dangers are exacerbated by COVID and by uh, the whole issue of mail-in ballots and Trump's attack on the mail-in ballots. So we can imagine, Gina, the following scenario, that in the evening of November 3rd, Donald Trump seems to have a lead in, again, let's focus on swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe North Carolina. And, and he declares victory on that day. And maybe even um, people like Sean Hannity. Uh, say that uh, Trump has been reelected president based on the preliminary results that have come in on November 3rd. As the mail-in ballots get counted, that lead evaporates. And by the time that the states, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, finish their full canvassing of votes, let's say we'll make up a date, November 15th or November 17th, we find that Biden has now a commanding lead in all three states, or at least a substantial lead in all four of those states. So that then comes back to the electors, right? There is this this process in place to actually certify the, the winner and kind of put these these wheels in motion. And that's where I think what, what you were saying earlier about it has the, the potential to go off the rails in all, in all kinds of other ways as well. One of the things that's very interesting about the four swing states that are going to be the focus of a lot of attention this fall, 
Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, North Carolina, is that they all have the same political profile. That is, they all have Republican-led legislatures and Democratic governors. And the reason that becomes so important is you could imagine that that the Republican legislatures uh, might actually support uh, Trump's claim that he won the state on Election Day, on November 3rd. That is, they might support the claims that we can't accept the results that were tallied through the counting of these mail-in ballots. On the other hand, you could have the governor coming along and saying in the same states, wait a second, we can't disenfranchise all these mail-in voters. Uh, we have to go with the state's final canvas that wasn't completed until two weeks after the election. What that means is you could have the situation in which the state legislatures certify the electors for Trump based on the November 3rd results, and you could have the state governors certify the electors for Biden based on the final state canvas uh, from, let's say, November 15th or November 17th. And there, that is bad news. That is bad news because that means that when these electoral slates are sort of certificates are sent to Congress and it's Congress, which according to the terms of the Constitution, will open the electoral uh, certificates, count them and announce the winner. Suddenly, Congress on January 6, 2021, which is the date in which a joint session of Congress will uh, open the certificates and tally them, Congress will have competing certificates from, I don't know, let's make it up, two, three, four states in which the balance of the election, in which the election will, will hang in the balance. Right. So we, we could have a scenario where, where no candidate has the 270 electoral votes needed to, to actually win. And then that sets up even more complications. If your listeners are thinking, well, again, this is, you know, a professor kind of going off the rails himself, this notion of kind of competing electoral certificates being sent to Congress with the uh, election in the balance. I mean, come on, that's just a hypothetical. And it's not a hypothetical. This has happened in our history. It happened in 1876. This is the famous uh, Hayes-Tilden election from 1876. And uh, that caused a true electoral crisis as well. And it almost tore the country apart. This is a country that was just slowly recovering from the spasms of the, the Civil War. And uh, it was an incredibly destabilizing event. Uh, there have been other times in our history in which states have submitted competing electoral certificates, which in these other instances, fortunately, did not affect the overall balance of the election. So that is, a, you know, again, it's not a likely scenario, but it is a realistic and a possible scenario, especially given the constellation of political forces that we have mm -hmm. in this country right now. And if you have that happen, if you have uh, this slate, uh, if you have these competing electoral certificates uh, before Congress in early January, and if you have the Senate remaining in Republican control and the House remaining in Democratic control, you basically have no way out of this crisis. You have no way of deciding who to award the electoral certificates from. And if you can't make that decision, then exactly as you pointed out, Jenna, then no one has received 270 electoral college votes. And if no one has received 270 electoral college votes, then the House of Representatives ends up voting for the President of the United States. 
And uh, this is again something that happened in 1800 and 1824. And even that process, again, it's a very, um, it's a potentially, it's also a process that can result in total gridlock. After this 1876 disaster, Congress realized they got to figure out a better way to deal with the possibility of competing electoral certificates landing in Congress's lap. So they spent the better part of a decade crafting a new law, and they crafted a law called the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And that is the law which is still in the books. It is the law that would guide Congress should the kind of scenario that we're describing happen this, this winter. Because a lot of people, these are even kind of colleagues that I've spoken to, they've said that, well, if the election gets tossed to the House of Representatives, like happened in 1800 and 1824, what's the problem for Biden? I mean, right now, the Democrats have a, a lead of uh, 235 representatives to 199 for the Republicans. And I think there's one vacancy right now. So clearly, Biden gets reelected by the Democratic majority in the House. Well, that's not the way it works, according to the Constitution. According to the Constitution, it's not each House representative gets to vote. It's each House delegation gets to vote, and they get one vote each. So California gets one vote. Wyoming gets one vote. And if you look at the present composition of the House, the Republicans actually have more House delegations, uh, 26 to 23 with one tie. So then you might say, oh, well, that looks good for President Trump. But it's not the present Congress that is going to be electing the president. It's actually the new Congress, which will also be voted in this coming fall, and they'll be sworn, in, uh, sworn into office three days before they have to look at the electoral certificates. They get sworn in on January 3rd, 2021. And all you do is have to imagine the Democrats capturing just a handful of seats, very, very uh, predictable that this would happen. And suddenly you have House delegations evenly 25 to 25. And if that's the case, then you don't have a president-elect. Then again, you have gridlock. And then you could arrive at January 20th at noon, which is when Donald Trump's term of office will end, without a president-elect. And at that point, according to the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, the Speaker of the House would become president. And uh, according to uh, so this would be Nancy Pelosi, assuming that she resigns her seat, she's required to do so. It seems that the the potential reform that has the most traction right now is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Did I get that name right? We, we've talked about it briefly on this show before. We had E.J. Dion on. I know he's been working on this yeah. at, at Brookings. But uh, can, you, can you remind us um, what that is and, and, and how that might change some of the, the calculus here? Right. So uh, uh, many people would agree that the, and as I would certainly agree, that the uh, Electoral College is an anachronistic and dysfunctional way to choose a president. That said, the Electoral College is uh, anchored in the U.S. Constitution, so it's virtually impossible to get rid of it through constitutional amendments. If there's one part of the Constitution which is dysfunctional as the Electoral College itself, it's the process by which the Constitution gets amended. It's incredibly difficult to amend the U.S. Constitution. So then the question arises, well, is there any way to make an end run around the Electoral College without having a constitutional amendment? And the idea, very clever idea, that uh, 
many people are working on is if you can get the states to cast their electoral votes based not on the popular vote winner in the state, but in the national popular vote, if you can get them to cast their all their electoral college votes in support of the national popular vote winner, and if you get enough states that equal at least 270 votes, that is a majority of electoral college votes, then in a sense, you've created an end run around uh, the electoral college itself. And I think right now, up until now, I think uh, states representing 196 votes, that is states plus the DC representing 196 votes, have signed on to this compact. And uh, it would be great to be able to get everyone on board with that, or at least states that represent 270 electoral college votes. That said, that remains, there'll be legal challenges to that. There'll be other kind of challenges to that. It is not in the interest of small states to sign on to this compact because right now the present system gives them a disproportionate uh, impact on electing the president and they will be loath to give that up. And secondly, it will be hard to get the swing states on board as well because it also focuses a tremendous amount of attention on them. And they don't necessarily want to barter away that uh, attention either. Mm-hmm. So we can hope it happens, but um, there, are simp- there are certainly roadblocks ahead that have to right. be overcome. Right. So you've you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about these issues, both the worst case scenarios, but also potentials for reform. Are there other paths forward that you see? You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, I think will be helpful, though I don't think, again, it will kind of necessarily save the day. But I do think it would be great if uh, media that that is the the John Kings of the world, uh, the people who are announcing the election on election night, very, very powerfully remind us that this is not uh, the Kentucky Derby that we're watching, uh, that we might not know the results for weeks. And remind us of this, uh, of the reality of millions of mail-in ballots that need to be counted. And also remind us of the reality of this blue shift, which has been demonstrated in many other elections. The other thing I could say is just moving forward. This is, again, this is not the kind of reform that would be put in place uh, in time for 2020. But if you look at who ends up counting votes in the states... And who ends up working through these election disputes within states, not within Congress? It's all partisan officials. You know, we don't have neutral bodies. We don't have nonpartisan election officials uh, that actually many other countries have that uh, observe and then work through election problems within states. It's all conducted by these partisan officials, uh, many of which are actually not just party members, but they often have leadership positions within the state campaigns of the people who are running for office. And so again, if we're trying to enhance the the visible legitimacy of the system, I think it would behoove us to introduce reforms that create nonpartisan bodies mm-hmm. for the purposes of resolving election disputes. That's interesting. Similar to the, the push to... Uh, change the way that that maps are drawn, kind of the, you know, and gerrymandering push. There's been movement certainly here strongly in in Pennsylvania, and I know several other states as well. So, you know, those folks, uh, some of whom I know listen to this show, you know, after 2021, we're going to be done with redistricting for a while. So maybe there'll be another cause they can uh, move on to, to to put that good government energy to, to use in, in different parts of the system. 
That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Exactly. And again, obviously, it raises these fraught questions as to who uh, participates in these um, these neutral, these you know, these bipartisan and nonpartisan um, commissions, and that raises um, you know issues. But it'd be much better for us to really kind of work towards that end rather than leave it in the hands of people with fiercely partisan agendas. Right. Well, Professor Douglas, there's so much more we, we could talk about, but uh, all the, the detail is is in your book. Thank you for, for your work on this project and for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Chris, I, I wanted to pick up around uh, some of the issues of the Electoral College, which sort of strike me as an anachronistic institution and one that also raises the potential for all kinds of illegitimate election outcomes. And maybe it's a good opportunity, too, before we get out of here today, uh, to just uh, elaborate a bit on what we mean when we talk about legitimacy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Can, I mean, can I just ask you, have you found that when you're teaching students and the subject of the Electoral College comes up, they just make this RCA victor face like they just don't understand what the hell you're talking about? And the more you try to make it clear, the more confused they seem to get. Yeah. Most Americans just think it's a popular vote. I have my students read Hamilton's discussion of why we have the Electoral College. What comes out in there is that the Electoral College was intended to be a deliberative institution. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, We know they were afraid of democracy. We talked about that all the right. time, majority tyranny, blah, 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 right? But the Electoral College in particular, now it was a political compromise. It was a political compromise that the slave states in particular really wanted. And it was seen as important for bringing them along. But like with everything else in the Constitution, Hamilton and Madison were able to make principled arguments in defense right. of their political compromises, right? And the Electoral College was designed to be deliberative and was actually designed by Hamilton to prevent the emergence of a demagogue exactly. because he felt like there would be good people there who would keep that from happening. So the key thing about the Electoral College that I try to emphasize them today to them today is that in no way, shape, or form is it a deliberative body. So, so the bottom line is that this is a, an institution that was designed to be to operate in ways that it no longer operates. Um, it is it is not just an anachronism, but it is it is like the appendix of the American. I mean, it, except it's incredibly <laughs> powerful, right? It it has no. Yeah, and then when it goes bad, you get really sick. Exactly. That's (laughs) that's right. But the point is, we're stuck with it, just like the appendix, right? I mean, it's not going anywhere. Well, unless we take it out. Well, I suppose you could. And and we could do a a constitutional amendment, but all the small states think, no, this is in our interest to keep it this way. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. If it was a popular vote, everyone would go to try to get votes in L.A. and New York and Chicago. I mean, because a vote is a vote. But that's not the case now. And so states that are tiny, like New Hampshire, for example, become very important because you need those votes and it's a swing state. Yeah. So So it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So why why doesn't the Electoral College or why does the Electoral College give us results that might not have what uh, Lawrence calls the sweet air of legitimacy? Yeah. And and so <laughs> the idea is that, you know, if however your politics are run, if you uh, if it's going to sustain itself, that people overwhelming majority of people have to have a sense that, well, 
whether I won, whether I win or lose, I know the game is fair. I know that what happened reflects the will of the people and, yes. and that um, there was no cheating. There was no fraud. And so, all right, that, that is necessary in order for the loser to concede, for the people who voted so, were so ardently, passionately for the person who lost that they can accept the results. It is yes. the and we- fundamental thing that a democracy needs. Yes, and, and in the in the American democracy, the, the sort of the rituals of concession right. on election night is part of what gives this legitimacy to the outcome. I accept as the loser, I accept this outcome, and I encourage you as my supporters to accept it as well. That the process by which this occurred is itself legitimate, and so therefore, even though we don't like the outcome. We accept it. So this is important, you know, and and rituals around it are important. And that's why, you know, we shouldn't downplay the significance of President Trump's constant efforts to undercut the legitimacy of this election before it takes place. Right. Ipso facto, either if I win, it's legitimate. If I lose, it is illegitimate. And that is just a recipe for a downfall of democracy. Right. I mean, you cannot have uh, a, a peaceful transition if the person in power delegitimates, is unwilling to accept the fact that this person lost. I do think that, you know, these issues of the legitimacy of the election, the efforts to undercut it, these are the critical questions coming up, at least for democracy in this, this election coming up. The only thing I would want to say, and just um, re- two things, one, vote. <laughs> There, the one thing you can do in in as a as a democratic citizen is make your make your preference known, and there's just no excuse, no excuse is good enough in this election not to do that. That's one. The other thing is a point you made earlier, which is we are not likely to know who the elector the winner is, and so when whenever you hear someone saying, "Well," we should just stop counting. That is a fundamentally undemocratic thing to do. And we just need to wait and find out what the numbers are. Very good. All right. Well, Godspeed to all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Uh, For Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.